Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. I'm Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 101, where we will be covering Edge Dancer by Brandon Sanderson. Yeah, right we are. Damn straight. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? So in this case, our spoiler policy is that we're going to spoil shit. We're spoiling the hell out of this book. We'll be spoiling everything through, well, we'll be spoiling the following three books. How about that? The Way of Kings, Words of Radiance, as well as Edge Dancer itself. All those are fair game for conversation points in this episode. Fair enough? Fair enough. No Oathbringer, Oathbreakers, whatever, War Wrenchers, <laughs> Taskmasters, <laughs> Mistborns, none of that. <laughs> That's right. Chad is working his way through the Cosmere, step by step. Starting at the end. Starting at the end. So we're going to be going through this book in a little bit of a different format. We're not going to go through chapter by chapter. We are just going to discuss character beats, major themes, and then world building stuff. Absolutely. As, a, as opposed to going through 21 individual chapters, which would take us forever and probably not be the most entertaining way of doing it. So a little bit of a, a different episode this time than we normally do things. So we got to throw something different at you. So what was your reaction to Edge Dancer? Was it what you expected? You know, not I, what you expected? No, I think it was pretty much kind of what I expected. Yeah, I think, I mean, as much as you can go into a book and not really know anything about it other than kind of who the main character is at a cursory level... Uh, this is kind of what I expected a novella about Lyft to be like. I would say it was pleasant. <laughs> it, it is. It's a nice little read. And Lyft is one of my favorite characters in Brandon Sanderson's universe. I know some people don't care for her. They don't care for uh, Brandon Sanderson's take on humor. Um, I, it, it does it for me, though. I enjoy the character. I can understand why some people don't enjoy the character, but it works for me. You know, and I think that's kind of what this book is about, is sort of letting that character stretch out and giving her an opportunity to do some interesting stuff. That's not to diminish from the character arc or the plot or any of those elements, but really this novel is a showcase for Lyft. Well, and I don't know if you read the, the kind of postscript that Brandon Sanderson <laughs> no. wrote. No. Who's got time for that? <laughs> you told me this was a novella, and 270 pages later, <laughs> this book ended. Um, so what he explains in the postscript is that basically he sat down to write Oathbringer, but there were a couple of character points that he didn't want to happen off screen, but that he couldn't work into that book. So in particular, Nail's character arc where he comes to realize that that his his work that he has that set up for him. Idiot. Yeah, that he's basically 
that he's basically been wrong this whole time. Yeah. He didn't want that to happen off screen, but he couldn't make it work into the book. And then additionally, he wanted Lyft to get some more some more screen time because she was going to be a, a bigger character in the next book. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want her to just jump from being this this little one-off character to being a more main character. I think it's interesting as well for us to get some exposure to other parts of the world a little bit more in depth. So one of the things that I find a little strange about Stormlight Archive so far is that it is this huge, sprawling, incredibly complex world, and yet we spend almost all of our time in one setting with one group of people, Mm -hmm. leaving the rest of this world just to be this massively huge mystery. So it's interesting to me to get to experience sort of what some people on the western side of the continent are dealing with and what that looks like and to learn about some of these histories. It gives you a different perspective uh, when characters start talking about the Night Catcher or the Night Watcher or, and Spren, and you get to see how different people from a different culture understand those things. Yeah, there's some neat world building that goes on here. Um, I guess we can just kind of go through the plot very briefly. Mm-hmm. The We start off with, with the prologue, which is the same chapter that we had as an interlude. I felt a little cheated by that. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You? Well, I, I think I think it's important that someone would be able to read this at, you know as a complete book. Agreed. And I understood why it was in there. But as I'm reading through the 30 pages, I'm like, did he change some things at the end? No, it's, no, it's the same thing. Exact same prologue. But we're introduced to Lyft, who is a, a lovable uh, street orphan, who is also becoming a Knight's Radiant. We meet her spren, Wendell, who is a cultivation spren. We see her her whole escapade, breaking into the grant, the, the palace, and her her friend, who is a fellow thief, ends up being killed. She resurrects him. He becomes the emperor. That's all the background. That all happens in the prologue. When we come back to her, she is running away from the palace. She is escaping because she's gotten too comfortable there. And she she says that, <laughs> humorously, she says that she leaves because she thought they were going to eat her because mm-hmm. they were being too nice. And and Wendell is like, that's crazy. Humans Humans don't generally eat each other. Mm-hmm. But what she means is that she is afraid of becoming someone else. The more that people know her, the more they have expectations of her. And um, so she's running away from that. She runs to this this other town called Yadal, which is a city that is carved out of rock by shard blades. It's kind of a neat thing. And we find out quickly that she is going, actually going there because she heard that Darkness, the man who has been stalking her and trying to kill her, is has been seen there and he's hunting another radiant. So she's kind of all about, she goes in, she kind of infiltrates the poorer section of town. She finds him and starts following him and then, and then goes about trying to rescue this radiant and figure even, even figure out who the other radiant is, figure out who the radiant is. And turns out to be the owner of an orphanage that, she has been frequenting um, who's like this, this crusty old lady. 
Um, and she then engages in an epic battle with darkness and ends up defeating him by listening to him. Mm-hmm. That which is a really cool turn, and we'll we'll talk more about that later. By the power of her hugs, <laughs> it, it is a neat. It's a neat thing. You're wondering how is this going to work out? Like, is she going to somehow be able to? Fi- you know, she's not going to lose or be killed or anything. But is she going to somehow figure out how to physically outclass this this herald, the herald of justice? Yeah, it doesn't seem likely. But but it's so cool that she ends up. What she ends up doing is realizing that she's not going to be able to beat him. She's going to have to change him. And Lyft and the edge dancers in general are all about listening to the people who are ignored, the people who are forgotten. And she kind of stops and she thinks about what has she heard him saying? What has she been li- She's been listening to him. She's been spying on him. And, and what he's been saying this whole time is that he's trying to stop the Voidbringers from returning. Mm-hmm. And that is why he is doing all of this. So she takes it, tricks him into going up on the roof where the Everstorm happens to be going by. And she shows him the Parshmen who are being changed by the Everstorm. And he finally realizes that, that he has been wrong this whole time. And that he knew it. And he has, you know a little nervous breakdown and then flies away. Yep. And it was just such, I, I love the ending of this book. It's such a neat, it was such a neat and unexpected turn. It, it was, I think it was a, a satisfying ending because as you said, it would be sort of ludicrous for her to attempt to fight this person and, and think that he, she's going to somehow overpower him. It would be ludicrous if it were to end that way. Her skill set is around, really predominantly about around escaping mm-hmm. and getting away. And so I sort of went into it expecting that she would somehow manage to escape him, get this other Radiant and leave or something along those lines. I, you also know that she has the power to heal people. So I figured that would be a factor. But what ends up happening is, as you said, it's more about her being able to listen to him and confront him with the insanity of his notion. And and so she changes him in a way that certainly not something I expected to happen. And really ends up being a, a permanent solution to the problem of Nail hunting down Radiance. We assume that he's not going to continue to do that, I guess we should say. We assume that he's going to stop at this point. Yeah, true. Um, so let's talk about Lyft and her arc in this book. Obviously, she's the star of the show. She's the main character. We, we've we already been introduced to Lyft. We know some kind of basic things about her. But we dig deeper into who she is and, and what motivates her in this book. And, and I would say her central crisis that she keeps, seems to keep repeating is that she doesn't know how to be a, a fully formed human. You know, and she's obviously someone who was orphaned at a young age. And she says, as she's growing and reflecting on what what she wants and what her deal is, that she learned how to find food and get fed. Like that was the most important thing when she was young. And she got very good at that. But once she was able to do that, she didn't know what to do next. And she's got this 
this sort of teenage identity crisis going on where she thinks everyone else seems to know what to do and she doesn't know what to do. And she's she's so kind of insecure in that that she is a- afraid of committing herself to a course of action or making decisions. Yeah, I think specifically about making decisions. It's interesting because to me that theme, and I would agree, that is the central that is the central thing that she struggles with throughout this book more than any other thing. But it doesn't really start to come out until later in the book. Earlier in the book, it seems to me like her struggle is more going to be about how does she how does she sort of fit into the rest of society and their expectations that they have on her? And she's in this position where she's made this oath and she's created these words that she will not forget the forgotten people, but she's also made a decision that she wants to essentially check out of society at large. And those two things are obviously a conflict with each other because you're not going to be able to forget the forgotten people if you refuse to talk to the people. But as we get more into the plot and she reaches more of this sort of crisis point and she gets deeper into what's going on, it does turn more into this sort of uh, thing that you were saying here where she is struggling with knowing what the right thing to do is and how to make decisions. and Well, and figuring out who she is as a person, mm-hmm. a big part of her fear of letting people in, getting close to people, mm-hmm. is that she says once people know you, they have expectations of yeah. you. And once people have expectations of you, you start changing to fit those expectations. And then you're not who you are anymore. And she feels like she doesn't have an identity. She doesn't know who she is. And she's afraid of letting other people shape that. And somehow all of this is tied uh, in her mind to the concept of change. Yes, I would say one of her prime motivators is fear of change. Yeah, which is, again, what motivates her to leave and to not want to be around people. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not just that they, it's, as you said, it's not the expectations. It's not just that they start to have expectations of you, but it's that this fear of change. And we don't, we don't really know precisely where that comes from but it's the request she made of the night watcher so it must be a fundamental sort of formative thing for her i suspect it's tied to her mother and how her mother died right we we find out through little comments that she says to wendell that she wasn't supposed to change she had asked to not change. The world was supposed to change, but she wasn't supposed to. And it, it's hinted that what really sets off her flight from Azir is that she started menstruating. Oh, I completely I think missed. there's a little comment completely that Wendell says, that. are you upset about the thing that just happened to you? Don't worry, you're not injured. I I think it's uh. I think it's supposed to be completely natural for humans. So I read that and I had no. I was like, "What in the world is he talking about?" And I was I like, "Oh it. yeah, ah, that makes sense." I did not I did not pick up on that. I thought there were it was cool to watch the progression of her powers throughout this novella as well. One thing I noticed early on was that she keeps talking about life spren being around. 
And I was like, that's yeah. weird. That's not one that, that in any of the other books was talked about a whole lot uh, unless they were in like a forest or a kind of kind of out in the wilderness. And then she mentions like, oh, it's weird. You don't usually see life spread unless there are plants around. They just kind of seem to follow her. And then, you know, at one point she's on a stakeout and she falls asleep and she wakes up and she's covered in vines. Yeah. They've all overgrown, mm-hmm. you know, while she was sleeping. Well, and later she sneaks into a building by using a tree. Mm-hmm. We know that her sprint is a cultivation sprint. Mm-hmm. So th- it makes sense sort of thematically that those things would all be tied together, but it is certainly something we see relatively little of outside of her chapters in her, in this novel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and, and so we, we've set up what her crisis is. She has this conflict with darkness with nail and she, in order to, find where he's going in order to beat him she has to ask for help from gox who is now the emperor of azir and she is she does this by sneaking into the kind of central depository repository of knowledge getting a hold of one of the spanries and writing him a message and it's and it's funny it, there's lots it's a very humorous part of the book yeah i, I thought it was i thought yeah. it was fun you know and I think it's it goes against her. That's one thing that goes against her character is reaching out and asking for help. True. Yeah, she doesn't want to re- be reliant upon anybody else. But she ends up in a situation where she's really pretty cornered. Right. And then she, when she gets to the end of this conflict, she realizes that nobody really knows what they're doing. Like this whole, and I that for me, that's just something that I can really connect with. You know, and I think most of us who are adults finally have that moment where we realize that, oh, nobody really feels like an adult. Yeah, ever. Like, you kind of wait and wait and wait. Do I ever have that moment where (laughs) one day I'm just going to really feel like a grown-up? And then you just realize, we're all faking it. Yeah. We're all faking it. Any any young listeners out there who haven't gotten to that point yet, spoiler alert, we're all faking it. Well, and I think that ties in really nicely with... Everything that happens to Nalan or Nail or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them, because that's exactly what that's exactly what happens is you have this character and and maybe we're transitioning a little too much into that character, but you have this character who at every point that you've seen him and you've seen him from the prologue of the Way of Kings, but every mm-hmm. time that you see him, he is buttoned up in charge on top of things emotionless, seems extremely focused and driven, knows what to do, lives Mm. by a code. And then at the very end of this, you see, as you said, you see this herald, this mythical thing, break down. Lose his shit. Lose it. Loses it. And that's how, you know, it all ends, is, is by revealing that this character who is this you know, uber, uber mensch, I don't know. I mean, has this just complete crisis of faith. And this is a theme that we have seen played out in this series quite a bit. The characters who look good on the outside, who look like they have it all together, are generally the ones that are hollow, that aren't really what they seem. Mm-hmm. And the ones who are messy on the outside are the ones who are, are authentic and are what they seem to be. 
But let's talk a little bit more about Nail. He's a really Ooh. interesting character. I love the way he's he's been teased, like you said, from the beginning of Way of Kings. And we've yeah, watched yeah. him mm-hmm. just kind of show up rant as a as a, a random guy with a scar, scarface, to then finding out that he is he is hunting people who are about to become surge binders. Mm-hmm. We see him kill kill a couple of people. A sad little cobbler. And then have him. We have we see him showing up, stalking Lyft, and learning more and more about him. We find out that he is, you know, the herald of justice. That he was the the patron of the order of Skybreakers, mm-hmm. and that in a totally hypocritical manner, he's actually got a couple of like journeyman Skybreakers. Like it's okay for them to surge bind, I yeah, guess. Yeah, right. But nobody else better do it. Yeah. What the Skybreakers and and Nail are are all about are following the law, following the law of the land, picking an external code and sticking with it no matter what. And then we see him also recruit Seth at the end of Words of Radiance and give him Nightblood. Yeah. And then we get to see Seth and Nightblood show up here again. And we that's, do, again, yeah. some of my favorite stuff, but we can talk about that later. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up that they follow a code because as he says, humans are fickle. Human minds are fickle. You know, they're prone to indulgences. They're prone to misunderstanding. They're prone to seeing what they want to see. But the only way to live and it, and avoid chaos is to find a code, stick to it doggedly. That's it. That's all you do. And, and the, even this sort of mythical creature, the more that he does that, the more broken he becomes. Now, what's unclear to me is, is Nail broken because he sticks to a code to the point where it has him murdering little girls in the street? Or is he broken because he's a herald who's been tortured for thousands of years? No, I think if you go back to the the prologue of Words of Radiance, where we overhear his conversation at at the party, where mm-hmm. Yasna overhears his conversation, he is talking about Shalash, one of the other heralds, yeah. and that she is getting worse. And then he says, I think I'm getting worse too. Are we all getting worse? Oh, well, I thought that was the other guy in the conversation who said that. Mm. No, no, no. He, yeah, he says it to Nalan. And Nalan's oh. like, shut up, you're fine. Oh, you know? God, yeah. But okay. what this other guy is saying is, we're all getting worse. We're all getting worse. So I think there's evidence that the heralds are all losing their damn minds. I mean, the other one that we saw, you know, who stand, sits in a corner and you know, babbles to himself, but can also pick blow darts out of the air. Yeah. You know, that one's clearly lost it. Right. So it, and I think it's interesting. One thing that, um, that Arklo, the sleepless says to lift at the end. Um, he says, when one achieves immortality, one must find a purpose beyond the struggle to live. And I think that's what we see going on here. You know, Nalan is, is immortal. He's Mm -hmm. lived, I mean, he was tortured for thousands of years and now he and the other heralds have just kind of gone their way and just lived and lived and lived and lived. And they're all starting to crack up. He's watching his fellow heralds start to crack up. I thought it was, it was interesting in the, 
the prologue of this, the the interlude of where we're introduced to Lyft, when the when the Aka sixes the um or the whatever the guys who are voting to on who's the emperor the viziers the yeah. viziers yes mm-hmm. the, the the viziers are are they say you know um they refer to one of the heralds and say he has spoken I can't remember I think yeah, it was Jezrian yeah. he's he has yep. spoken and um he says something like yeah right if he ever stops drooling. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. little comments like that lets you know that the heralds are not in good shape. And he's watched his fellow heralds kind of like descend into in, into madness or whatever. And he, he that's why I think why he is like just knuckled down on what he's decided his purpose. This is what's going to save him from from going crazy. He also talks about Ishar. Yeah, I was I was debating whether to bring that up here or in the world building stuff. But that was. On rereading it and taking notes, that to me was probably the most interesting part mm-hmm. of him and his character. Yeah, uh, because at f- at first I did I wasn't sure who Ishar was. So he he is talking about his code and how important it is to live by this code, and he says Ishar has spoken, or something to that effect. And his acolyte challenges him and says, "But we've seen." St- Storm spren and there seems mm-hmm. like there's evidence that the Voidbringers are coming back. And he's like, nope, nope, nope. I've just spoken with Ishar, and he says there's no way it could be Voidbringers. And I'm like, what ain't you, no Voidbringers here. You got an Ishar walkie-talkie in your back pocket? <laughs> it's like, you know, he looks like he's talking to the great Gazoo. You know, like <laughs> he looks up into the sky and says. Ishar, what is it? Okay. No, no, no void bring- Ishar says no void bringers, no void bringers. And I'm like, who the hell is Ishar? And why is this Herald, who is, you know, the seemingly this demigod and does not appear to have like does not appear to have anyone above him, at least not clearly that he can talk to, why is he referring to and deferring? to Mm -hmm. something else and then later i realize it's another one of the heralds one Mm -hmm. we haven't seen or at least i don't think we've seen right it's perplexing because you know why is this one in charge the king of the heralds is not ishar it was Mm -hmm. jezreel or Mm -hmm. or whatever and who is this guy to say like we just don't know we don't know but we know that nail is someone who needs someone else to tell him what to do true yeah you know he he doesn't do well with moral ambiguity so that's one way to put it (laughs) as a little girl's body in the street can attest to oh that was a a brutal scene a brutal scene where he kills the pickpocket yeah i mean i keep referring to it because Mm -hmm. it's pretty pivotal to understanding who this character is Mm -hmm. i mean we we already see that from the prelude where he's going to kill lift and we see it in other books where he kills surge binders. But when in the prelude, when his one of his minions kills Gawks, he gets upset about it. I wouldn't say he gets upset, but he does not tolerate it. Correct. He doesn't get, he's not emotionally upset. He's like, that was not within keeping of the law. Mm-hmm. And so later, he did not have the paperwork to he did kill not that have the child. Proper paperwork, yeah. So later, when he snatches up a pickpocket and 
The pickpocket, not having under any understanding of who this is, attempts to defend herself and pulls out a knife and tries to stab him. He, even though he, he is not even close to threatened by this child, kills her in cold blood in front of everyone because drawing a blade on an officer of the law is punishable by death. Something that everyone can clearly see was beyond necessary or be just so incredibly unnecessary that no no human being could justify it but in his mind it's perfectly justified and i think that's an important thing for us to see and understand and it makes it to me it makes what happens at the end much more important because that is something that lift watches we all watch and clearly draws a line to me that this guy is cracked or an evil and yet she hugs him and has to overcome that anyway and it's such an interesting parallel between lift and kaladin the two radiants that we've seen find their second ideal and yeah. both had to do with helping someone that they did not like yeah or that they despised Kaladin's second ideal was about protecting people as long as it is right, even if he hates them. Yep. And Lyft's is about listening to everyone who is ignored, even her mortal enemy. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Well, there, I mean, the oaths are these sort of moral absolutes. Not moral absolutes in the way that Nail has a moral absolute of, I will uphold a law without any regard to whether it's just. Mm -hmm. But absolutes in terms of, of, as you said, I'll listen to everybody, no matter who they are. Mm -hmm. I'll care for the forgotten, even if the forgotten are people I don't like. Well, and I like your comments about Nail always being in control versus Lyft never seeming to be in control. Yeah. And right as we get up to the, the crisis point of the book, Lyft says to Wendell, you know, you asked me before what I wanted. I just want some control over my life. Nail, on the other hand, has got every, you know, aspect. You could tell he, you know. He brushes he, each tooth 20 oh times up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How did you know I was going to talk about toothbrushing? Was I making, I was making a motion with my hand. <laughs> he yeah. brushes all each tooth 20 times in a downward direction. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, he is that kind of guy. And at the end, he... Right before he breaks, he tells her that he is hu a human perfected yeah. because he no longer feels guilt or any of those pesky emotions that get in the way of justice. He is obviously just, he's reached the next stage and then realizes that he's been wrong this whole time. Um, and, and we don't know what happens to him after this, but he, I'm he guessing it involves a lot up. of Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> true in the arms of the radiance <laughs> he's gonna go listen to the smiths for a couple of weeks absolutely have some herbal tea <laughs> this is chamomile and <laughs> chamomile and morrissey he's gonna write a lot of letters on loose leaf paper <laughs> so nails character arc tbd We'll find out an Oathbringer what happens to him next. Well, it's interesting. 
that that kind of whole crew, I mean, well, really, it's Nail and Seth. Right. Are, you know, these creatures who come from this, I have a code, it's morally absolute. I don't have to, th- I'm not going to think about whether it's right or it's wrong. It is. This is what it is. I follow the code. I do. You know, and it's a way of absolving themselves from having to take responsibility for what they're doing. It's so interesting to see Seth in this book and how far he has come from the person we knew in Words of Radiance and the Way of Kings. He was that person who let his masters just turn him into a murder machine and ignored his own conscience. And we don't get to see a whole lot of him, but there is there is a scene where Lyft is following darkness and Seth knows that she's there, he sees her, and he lets her go. And in fact, even talks to her and says, you're the one he's chasing. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, well, the sword likes you, so I'm yeah. not going to kill you. <laughs> and it's so interesting. You've got this character who's who has literally crammed his own conscience down and ignored it for decades, done unspeakable things, and now is at the point where he doesn't feel like he can trust his own mind or his own sanity, but he's been given a sword that can literally tell whether someone is evil or not. Yeah. <laughs> but who has no grasp of the the nuances of of what you do with evil or good and evil. Yeah. And um so it's just such a an interesting pair and I like love just hearing the snippets of his half of the conversation, and then he he calls he calls Nightblood Sword Nimi, and I just want <laughs> I want the Seth and Nightblood Roadshow. Yeah, yeah, that I want their spinoff novella. Yeah, that would be fun. It'll be four hundred pages, but it'll be a novella. It he comes around. Seth starts to come around before Nail comes around. You know, and he also points out, hey, dummy. <laughs> The Radiance and the Voidbringers are here, man. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why you can't take the shells off your eyes, man. It's it's right in front of you. I think that is the one thing that is difficult. And it's not to say that Brandon Sanderson hasn't done a good job of it with this character. Mm-hmm. Because you, you get several instances, as you said, in drips and drabs of him ignoring the obvious, you know, mm-hmm. or or willfully just stuffing things down and mm-hmm. not wanting to make it, not wanting to see what's in front of him. But it is at the same point in time, it is also hard to believe in the face of all the things he's seen that he does not get that the Radiance and the Voidbringers, they're back, baby. You know, and you're, continuing to go down this road for no reason. Mm -hmm. But I guess if that's what you've been doing for thousands of years. Well, and again, if you are someone who needs someone else to make your decisions and you've got this Ishar character over here saying, no, 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 those aren't real void bringers. Those are like the old void bringers from before. They've just been hanging around. Yeah. You know, he's grasping at anything that can help him justify what he's been doing. Yeah. So it's a very it's a very interesting thing to explore thematically. We got to talk about Wendell. W man. W. I love Wendell. He's one he uptight voidbringer. Definitely uh one of my favorite uh favorite side characters. Uh, not that he's a side character but sidekicks. He's the best spren. Oh, absolutely the best spren. I mean, Syl's all right. 
Now, pattern's better than sill. Wendell, pattern, then sill, for sure. I, I'll go with it. I don't have particularly strong emotions <laughs> about the spren. <laughs> None of them are human, so I'll go with it. So I love how he's always talking about his garden, his weird garden of chairs. Yeah, he grew sofas. He grew crystals from the mines of sofas. Oh. And he was there starting a collection go. of boots, crystals grown from the mines of boots. Um. So the first thing I, I thought was really funny about Wendell is he so wants to be a shard blade but doesn't yeah, yeah like he like keeps hinting about it lift asks him where where will i get a shard blade and he's like it's forbidden for me to tell you he's i like, can't tell you but i hope you don't hit anyone with me yeah yeah <laughs> you know and i guess i'm just gonna have i can't tell you but i, I get i guess it's my job i guess i have to tell you i'm not gonna <laughs> tell you but i have to tell you can't don't hit don't hit me against things um did you notice that wendell said at one point where he was frustrated with Lyft, he says that he was considering a nice cobbler man. Yeah. Instead, who took care of children. Yep. And of course, that's the cobbler that we saw get killed by Nail in one of the interludes in the last book. So, you know, it's funny that he's lamenting that he didn't get the nice cobbler man. But if he had had the nice cobbler man, he'd be sitting in the uh, Spren version of an insane asylum right, right. now. So it's interesting, you know, you look at the dynamic between all of the radiance that we've seen in their spren and the kind of push and pull. And we see Wendell, like we've seen Syl and Pattern, pushing and encouraging Lyft to progress in her skills, to find the next set of words that she needs, and to, like, figure out what's going on with her emotionally, mentally, so that she can continue to gain her powers. They both sense this, this something wrong going on. They both know that something, something bad is on the horizon. It's also interesting to me that, so with, particularly with Syl, but even, but even with Pattern as well, we, we get to meet them when they are early and kind of formless before they can even talk or when they're just figuring out how to talk and patterns bumping into things and still at first is just a spren and doesn't have words. When we meet Wendell, Wendell is fully formed, you know? Yeah. He's a fully formed person and he actually even has a character arc versus Sill and Pattern both sort of exist as a foil to their radiant. They're just mm -hmm. sort of a sounding board, like a, a source of guidance, that kind of thing. They don't really have, you know, Syl goes through, everything that they go through is done to them or caused by their radiant. Yeah, the thing the thing that's weird, though, is that I don't know when Lyft got this brand. I think it was three years ago, is that what she said? I, I think so. So that's why he seems so much further along than the other ones. Because well, Shalon had been with hers for five years, but she spent most of that time stuffing it, stuffing it down and not acknowledging who Pattern was. I think also Wendell talks about the precautions that his people, the circle, took mm -hmm. when he came over from the cognitive realm that protected him from the memory loss and some of the trauma that the other Spren have had to go through. Yeah. Um, he, Despite that, he still does talk about it being easier to bond with her than he expected. 
Yeah. And that might have something to do with the fact that he thinks that Lyft is partially in the cognitive realm all the time. Yeah, it see, it does seem like there's something to do with what happened with her and the Night Watcher that is helping sort of speed her progress to some to some degree. It definitely makes her unique. There's no question about that. Yeah. And Wendell is unique among the Spren we've known because he actually has an arc that's all his own. That's not just basically based on what trying to get someone else to do something, trying to get their his Radiant to do something. You know, and he comes, I think that's because he, he came over into this world pretty much with a fully formed personality. And he's very clear about his displeasure with Lyft most of the time. And we were used to this certain dynamic between the two of them. Lyft ragging on Wendell, Wendell putting up with it, trying to guide her and stuff. But we get into that a deeper dynamic in this book where we see uh, Wendell's cowardliness, yeah. you know, his fear, his insecurity. And we see him have to overcome that. And we see him have to make a decision to put himself at risk, to allow Lyft to put herself at risk, even though it would traumatize him. And that, yeah, it's all about him. I mean, it's all about him. And when he starts talking about, well, if you have to die, could you die this way and not that yeah. way? Because <laughs> it'll a nice be, fall off a cliff. It'll be something. really traumatic for me if you get stabbed. And could you try not to look at me while you're dying? Because I don't think I could handle it. Yeah. You're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, buddy. Um, well also i think so in addition to him having to kind of grow in terms of that bravery and accepting risk he he also begins to understand that there are stakes sort of outside of himself and you see him sort of come to grasp that when you know he first sort of recognizes that they do have to follow darkness you know and he says well we can just go and we'll go back to azish and uh, you know, we'll go back to the palace and everything will be fine and darkness will stay here and he'll just find somebody like us and kill them, I guess. And, oh, wait, mm-hmm. I guess we can't do that, can we? You know, and I think it, it also makes the relationship stronger between the two of them. It does. And in fact, the last, I think the last line of the book is Lyft turning to Wendell and saying, you know what? I'm starting to think you might not be a void bringer after all. Which to me was a very important line because for the degree to which listening is so important, until that point, she has not really been listening to anything Wendell says. Well, I I think that it's been, and we we both know this, but what she's saying there when she says, I think you might not be a void bringer is, I'm ready to move past the part of this phase of our relationship where I tease you all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like she's always known he wasn't a, a void bringer, but... It was an immaturity on her part and an unwillingness to accept what she was and what her responsibility was. Well, in the beginning of the book, I mean, I guess depending on whether or not you think she's an unreliable narrator, she thinks about him as a void bringer and how weird it is that he, you know, was this and that. So it's not just what she's saying, but she, in the beginning of the book, does seem to actively think that he is really a void bringer. I don't know if I would call it being an unreliable narrator, but there are definitely things that even her thought stream don't reveal to us. Mm. When she decides to head off to Yadal, she doesn't think I've heard about the darkness is there and I'm going to go track it. You know, she's true, just yeah. like, Oh, blah, blah, blah. I really want these pancakes. No other reason. I just want the pancakes. That's true. Yeah. You, you are know? getting sort of a surface level 
yeah thoughts of of her so that's true yeah which is it's interesting in uh in Brandon Sanderson's writing he doesn't often have that kind of subtlety in his when he's in the in the brain of a character it's usually no, that's like true. I'm feeling this. I am thinking this. It's all very just laid out. Everything is yeah. usually laid out for you. Mm-hmm. So are we ready to talk about some of the uh, more secondary characters? Yeah, there's some interesting ones. Yes. Who do you want to start with? Well, I want to start with Stump. The Stump. The Stump. Who I thought was interesting from a couple of perspectives. One, I think the the choice of the name is meaningful. Because before we meet the stump, Lyft is comparing the people around her and herself to plants during a high storm. Mm-hmm. You know, some are, are drop deads. They just, when the storm comes, they, they bend over, they wait it out, they get up, but they're on their own. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else creates these walls where their limbs entangle. Uh, they survive the high storm by being connected to one another. And that's an obvious allusion to her feelings about being kind of part of a society, right? right? But then we meet the stump and they say, oh, they call her the stump because no high storm can move her. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know? She deals with some really unfortunate situations and she has runs an orphanage where children are brought to her because the parents can't take care of them or don't want to take care of them. And as Lyft highlights, these are not, these are not like the girls from Annie. Mm -hmm. These are kids that are hard to love, Mm -hmm. you know, and she takes care of them anyway, but she does it with a certain degree of nastiness. Mm -hmm. And she, what's interesting about the character is we find out that she does not believe a lot of the orphans. She thinks they're faking their mm-hmm. illnesses and things because what she fails to realize is that she has been healing them. Mm-hmm. So kids come to her and they have obvious afflictions. You know, they've maimed legs, they've got mental disorders, they've you know got severe retardation or things of those nature. And then after being with her, they, they get over those things. And she's like, you've been faking this whole time. But she doesn't realize that it's her. And we're led to believe, you know, that she has been laundering, quote, laundering money. Mm-hmm. But it's really that she, it's the stormlight she needs to be able to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and she is the, the radiant that, uh, that darkness is hunting. But I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Why, in a world that has spheres for money, is money laundering even a thing. Are there little serial numbers on the bottom of the spheres that I don't know about? Maybe. How do you launder money in a society like that? I don't know. It's a good question. I, I mean, they have notaries too. Mm-hmm. So they do. And sofas. They have all the bureaucracy. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was a little peculiar, but, but that's okay. Yeah. It's neat to watch a radiant gain their powers sort of from the outside you know we're introduced to the stump as just this this mean old lady that lift doesn't like you know it's just kind of hinted that she's a crook basically but in the end to find out that she is the radiant that they're chasing yeah 
and to watch her kind of realize what she's been doing. And apparently she's been seeing a spren that looks like like a reflection of light or something. Mm-hmm. That's pretty neat. Yeah. And then the other character we have that I want to talk about is the sort of the red herring of the novel. Mm-hmm. Is it Arklo? Arklo. So we have Arklo, who is this mysterious character that Lyft meets outside of the orphanage, who starts talking to her in this sort of pseudo-philosophical way and asking her these weird questions. And at least I thought, I wasn't convinced that he was the Radiant, Mm -hmm. but you could easily be led to believe that this is the Radiant that Darkness has been looking for. Right. So much so that when the minions of Darkness think they have found him, they found the Radiant, it's Arklo that they think they found. Mm -hmm. But when we meet this, what seems to be this mysterious old man who's, you know, bestowing a certain wisdom upon this young character and asking her probing questions, sort of building up, this is what I think is interesting about this here, building up this sort of trope of the old, you know, kind of wise man who's going to shepherd the hero around. When we meet him in a dark alley, he is so far from that Mm -hmm. that it's actually quite shocking. Yeah, that's a nice little plot twist, isn't it? It is, yeah. Turns out he's just a man made of bugs. He's one of the sleepless. Mm-hmm. And he can, he's been building these sort of army of Kremlings and to a point where he can form them into a body. Because apparently he does, it seems like he does not have a body of his own. Seems to be a spirit or an entity of some kind. So that way he has a body and he can manipulate things, but he can also send them off to do other things and to spy, and he can be all these places at once. And so that's another Brandon Sanderson, let me drop this mystery on you from the middle of nowhere. So Brandon Sanderson has revealed in interviews that these people made of these hordlings, they're called, I think they're, it's the Dionysian Amians, that they've been seen, that whenever you see, um, a lot of times if you see a strange Kremlin noticed, Mm. That is one of these, yeah, Dionysian Amians. So there are you can list, look on the copper mine, and that the, you the, you could see that they were you know in Kaladin's slave cage around Shalon a whole lot. You can kind of go back and see where they have been. Isn't Axes the collector one? Axes the well, he talks about Axes. Yeah, um, he is a, he is an Amian. He can change his his body type. Hence, why he can. Yes, but he's one of the sleepless. Gotcha. Okay. So this is the second of the sleepless that we've overtly met. Right. So let's talk about the themes yeah, going on in this let's book. Let's do that. Yep. There's a couple of interesting ones, primarily coming of age, obviously, moving into adulthood from childhood, and that's the, the central crisis of our main character, and this idea of not being able to really escape responsibility or community. Yeah, that's the that's the big one I see is community and can you be a hero and be a loner at the same point in time, mm-hmm. you know. I also think it's a really interesting exploration of internally versus externally generated morality. Um when yep. we contrast mm-hmm. lift uh, with darkness and 
you know, Lyft who has, you know, no problem stealing, no problem dumping grain on hungry people. She really doesn't struggle with her moral compass. And in fact, early in the book, Wendell says to her, your moral, you know, your sense of morality is very strange. And she says, don't be stupid. Every sense of morality is strange. Yeah. She has no problem <laughs> with line, that. She has, way. yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, she, but it's part, just part of who she is. She rolls with the punches. She does what feels right in the moment and does not overthink it. Nope. And you contrast her with, with darkness, who is this externally imposed morality that's really born out of deep insecurity because the heralds are all losing their damn minds. And Seth, who is somewhere in between, who is trying to move from, you know, externally versus internally imposed. Yep. He's trying to come up with his own sense of uh, of morality and reconnect with his conscience. So it's an interesting exploration of that theme. Yeah, and you have, obviously, what we've, what we've already stated about um, Nalan, but then when Lyft is going through the struggle, she sort of asks Arklo, you know, how do you know how to be an adult? Because at this point she thinks he's, you know, a kindly, wise old man. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you just you just have to just trust your instincts. And it's right before the sort of climactic moment where she is attempting to change Nail mm-hmm. that she reaches out and and hugs him and embraces him. And she's like, I don't know why, it just... It just on instinct seemed like the right thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what really makes the difference here. But it is sort of an interesting thing to consider because what Brandon Sanderson seems to be saying here is that just, tr- you know, trust your instincts and you'll know the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But then you have to wonder was Sadius trusting his instinct or following some sort of external code? Because there's still room, obviously, for people who think they're completely well-intentioned to do horrible, horrible things. Uh, absolutely. And when you look at what Sadius's moral code is doing what's best for Sadius. Yeah. And incidentally, that's what he thinks is best for the kingdom as well. Sadius sort of believes that as long as there's just one strong person leading the kingdom, it doesn't really matter who it is. So it might as well be me. Yeah. But yeah, that is a very good point. Just because someone has a moral code of their own that's internally motivated does not necessarily mean that it is... (laughs) Ab, you know, yeah, yeah. what we would consider absolutely moral in any sense of the word. But the radiants are a little bit different because they've chosen these oaths, which are sort of moral absolutes. Mm-hmm. They are sort of moral ideals. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that they will sort of embrace this ideal, but then sort of live up to it. Mm-hmm through just experiencing things and trying and failing and getting things right and getting things wrong. Mm -hmm. And kind of going back to your concept around community, Mm -hmm. I think it's also very interesting that we get a lot of the overt parts of that theme preached to us by Arklo, who is a community Mm-hmm. of Kremlings right? organized by a central spirit or mm-hmm. spiritual idea. He's a hive mind. He's a hive mind. And so he's telling us that because, you know, because that is his perspective. And yet 
that is still a very central theme in this book, is that Lyft can't live up to her ideals and mm-hmm. live up to her oaths if she is not a part of the larger organism. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point that he talks about people being part of, he sees the people in a city as being part of a, a sort of hive mind of their own. Yeah. And he asks Lyft, what is it about you? What? Why did the city call you to be here right now? Yeah. And it's inter- It's just interesting as that she hears that as she is struggling for what is her purpose? What is she supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And supposedly the answer to this question is what he is going to, she's going to trade him for him to give her a hint about yeah, yeah. who the radiant is, but then she figures it, she out, figures on it out on her own. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because he says, well, I'll be back, you know? Yeah. We're not, we're not, I'm not done with you, mm-hmm. but, but in this world, people are sort of connected mm-hmm. to some greater, there is almost some sort of hive mind greater mentality mm-hmm. going on whether people are aware of it or actively involved in it or not, because you have these spren, you have these desolations, you have these Knights Radiant coming back, and something is driving all of that, and everybody's still kind of playing a part in mm-hmm. that, but we don't really we don't really know what that is. You know, we don't know what's behind, you know, this it, and why honor is dead and and who races and all those sorts of things. So there's still a lot of greater mysteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting world building tidbits that come up, and a couple that I wrote down um, that I think may come back to us. They talk about the God King of the Tukari. There's all sorts of rumors about him. So we're going to put a pin in that guy. I completely missed. So we're talking about world building stuff now. Uh, let's seems to have segged into that pretty nicely. Sure, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lyft talks about Yedaw being the closest you could get to seeing Sesamalex Dar. Yeah, Sesamalex Dar. Sesamalex, that's much better than the way I said it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that it's right. It's just the way it rolls off my tongue. Sesamalex Dar. It's like very sexy sounding. That's right. Town. Uh, But apparently it's a war zone. Don't go there. I thought, what I noticed at one point, Lyft is outside of the orphanage, and she notices a prim Alethi man walking by who is at least a head taller than everyone else. Yep, I noticed that as well. So um, Straight back to very good posture. Yes. Don't know who it is. Do you? I mean, if I tell you, you I do or if I tell you I don't, is a spoiler either way. So Gotcha, okay. Uh, no, I pointed that one as, out as well. The, another one I thought was interesting that I didn't see come back, but I suspect will come back, mm-hmm. is she talks about the Azish, the Azish clothing, mm-hmm. and she said these patterns were everything. They were like words. And I'm like, do we have like a another Yilish knot situation? Mm-hmm. Or do we have like the uh, Voriva Zakonia situation, the Russian prison tattoos mm-hmm. where, you know, there are codes hidden in these things that people who are in the know know what they mean. But it doesn't come up again in this book. Right. So I don't know if it's a throwaway thing or if it's something we'll actually see come back up again. We'll find out. The other thing I noted from a world building standpoint is 
Wendell is super wigged out, not just by Nail, but by the concept of the Heralds in general. Right. He he calls them abominations. And I don't really know why that is, but like he is clearly not down with the Heralds. Right. I mean, we don't have another spren that we can talk to enough to really get any other sort of, to get a learn mm-hmm. enough about it. So, so he's been the most effusive of the spren for us to be able to, you know, even get to that point with. And speaking of weirdo spren, mm-hmm. uh, what's up with the Night Watcher, man? What is up with the Night Watcher? And like, what in the world did Lyft ask for? It seems like she asked. She asked not to change. Not to change, not to yeah. age. Uh, I'm assuming my take is that she doesn't want what happened to her mother to happen to her. That's my take, and that's why she made that ask. But it seems like what she got was the ability to turn food into stormlight mm-hmm. and this sort of being partially in and out of the cognitive realm. Mm-hmm. But it seems like everybody else gets sort of something that they asked for and something they didn't ask for. I'm not quite so clear where lift stuff fits into this, Mm -hmm. but she comes up a couple of other times because Wendell also says the mother has given up on your kind now that he's gone. And so like, it just seems like we're going to learn more about the night watcher through lift more than any other character. And whatever she has done to lift is, so I've said this before with other Brandon Anderson stuff, what you tend to find is he lays down these rules. He makes the rules very clear. These are what the rules are. Mm -hmm. And then later, he introduces something that breaks the rule. Mm -hmm. And it seems, you know, and whatever breaks the rule is the key that unlocks Mm -hmm. the book. Seems to me like lift in and of herself is a giant fucking key. Mm Mm-hmm. She is the the breaking of so many different rules. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not accidental. That's not random. It was done by the Night Watcher. Mm-hmm. So there was some motivation there, but we don't know what it is. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We also have, you know, recently br- that that we know have brought into this world a piece of magic from a completely another magic system. Oh, yeah, yeah, with Nightblood. So, yeah. and, and now we have those two in the same book interacting. So it's just yeah. it's a lot of potential for interesting, interesting interactions. I, I loved when Seth was like, the sword likes you. Yeah. <laughs> and just like having read Warbreaker and having the context of all of Nightblood's conversations with with various characters, mm. that one little line just packs such a punch. You know, cuz Lyft is like, "Okay, great. I like the sword too." Yeah. And if you hadn't read Warbreaker, you'd be like, "Okay, that's just a weird that's thing weird, to say." Whatever. But yeah. uh, you know, you just know that that Nightblood uh the, the way he talks about people that he likes is you can kind of picture that in your mind. It'd be interesting to see if we ever get I mean, we well, I guess we have gotten I was going to I was going to say Will Nightblood ever talk? But he already has in his introduction. Right. So right. I hope we get more of that. Yeah. 
I mean, those are my key sort of uh, notes around world building. Oh, the fact that Seth apparently leaves a glowing after oh, image yeah, when he walks around. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, yeah, when I first read that, I was like, what, how did I miss that? And then I was like, no, I didn't miss that. Something has happened. Something different yeah. has happened yeah, I mean, to he, him. He died and came back to life. Yeah, but um, but this is, again, this is outside of the pattern. Mm-hmm, Yeah. Because he's a skybreaker, we kind of see a little bit about what that is. We have other skybreakers who don't leave that. We know he already has night blood, so that's already a weird sort of break in the pattern. And then this thing is happening too. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Seth is going to play an e- uh, a bigger role. Mm-hmm. We'll see what that means. Yes, we will. All right. Do you want to talk about some of the uh, some of the dialogue? There was some some really groovy dialogue. Yeah. That I wanted to speak about. So the first is this might be my favorite line in the novel. Mm-hmm. When she's in the uh, sort of city hall place and they've figured out that she's somehow related to Gawks, the emperor, she says to them, "Say it," and they say, <laughs> "Your pancakefulness." <laughs> I mean, come on, that's great. The yeah. dial- But the dialogue is a big part of what makes, I mean, that's what makes Lyft, you know, is her voice. Right. And that's a big part of this. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's huge, huge, huge part of it. Another one was uh, that I liked was, did you assault that woman? Barely. <laughs> Barely. And I can imagine the rest of the conversation going, <laughs> you mean you hardly touched her? And Lyft being, oh, no, she's dead. I assaulted her like a bear. That's what I imagined the rest of that conversation being. And then, of course, the shard fork. The shard fork. That's pretty amazing. And just her and Wendell's interactions always, I just get such a kick out of them. Especially when he spends the whole time being like, I'm not a soldier. You're not going to hit people with me. Yeah, yeah. And at the end, he's like, I wonder what I'd look like as a shard blade. Yeah. <laughs> not to not to be used in battle or anything, just to be displayed. I think I'd probably be very elegant, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Well, and you have lines like, uh, you know, she says, are you giving me lip void bringer? Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't know what that means, but from context, I'm assuming yes, and you probably <laughs> deserve it. <laughs> yeah. But it, it really is that that relationship, um, you know, and it comes out through the dialogue. I, I don't look at Brandon Sanderson as being somebody who is writes masterful dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and I will stand by that. Mm-hmm. However, I think this is a place where he shines. Yes. Yes. A sassy sidekick dialogue is um, his, his forte. Yeah he, does, yeah, he does that well, for sure. Well, that's all I have in my notes. For that is all I have as well. Are you ready? Dancer. Are you ready to hear some listener interactions? Yes. Lay it on me. All right. So we were a little late to get it out this uh, this week. Our question, because just sort of out of the rhythm, and uh, so we didn't get as much time, but we did get our, our questions out there, and we had some folks who replied. Our first is from Or Inbar, who says, how do you feel about Lyft being the best night's radiant? I mean, I'm feeling positive about it. Although I'm holding out for Renarin. I mean, nobody's going to beat the Lopin. That's true. 
Lift versus the Lopen. Nobody's going to beat the Lopen. Merry no. Bike Ride Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I do legitimately, not just from a character standpoint, but also from a practicality standpoint, I think Lift is going to, because she is that thing that breaks the pattern, I do think she's going to be absolutely instrumental mm-hmm. in how this whole story unfolds which I don't know that I can say for everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that Stump is going to be like, you know, the one piloting the X-Wing fighter that destroys the Death Star. Right. You know, I think Lyft might be that character, however. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I legitimately think she might end up being the best Knight's Radiant. The only thing, the one thing I do think is weird, though, is with the whole food thing, it seems to me like in this world, unless things change, and they might with the way the storms are getting shaken up, but unless things change, the other radiance never, ever really seem to run out of stormlight. Mm-hmm. It always seems to be there when they need it. But food, she seems to run out of food all the time. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how that she plays out. She also almost deliberately puts herself in situations where she runs out of food. You know, she she was given a purse of money, yeah. you know, she left it on purpose. Well, and you know? she wouldn't eat the stump's meal until she thought it was actually the stump's meal. Right. That one, that one time. So she's weird about some of her rules in the. It's like she makes you right. It got to a point she says in the book where it was no longer challenging. Mm-hmm. So I had to make it interesting for myself. So that counter yeah. question: yeah. How bad did this book make you want pancakes? It's with some chopped up veggies in them, mm-hmm. uh, some savory pa- pancakes. Mm-hmm. I could do that. It sounds pretty good. Another one of my favorite lines mm-hmm. is um, uh, pancakes. It's for uh, for healing the children or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and you know she means it in you know like I eat pancakes so I can heal right the children. But I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but I'm like, no. If you give kids pancakes, they'll stop crying. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, my favorite was when Lyft realizes there was no tenth pancake. Oh yeah. <laughs> And she was like, I'm getting the Herald of Justice back here. <laughs> like, he's not going to be happy. <laughs> All right. Eric uh, Schaefer says, I've been thinking that it may be possible for Lyft to reach a degree of slickness where she can become invisible, either mm. entirely or semi, because light will slide around her. Oh, snap. I, I think that's an interesting idea. I don't know if it would be that or the fact that she's sort of in and out of the cognitive realm. Mm. You know, or maybe a combination of the two, but I could definitely see that happening, or where she could look like she's there but not really be there. Material, mm-hmm. I could definitely see that happening. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, "It seems to me edge dancers are a bit underpowered at the moment compared to the other orders, and that can help balance things out a little bit." What do you think? I think that we have seen lift. It's interesting because we've haven't seen a child radiant so True. far. We have Lyft, who is 13 tops, and a lot of, I think, what she's going through. We compare her to Kaladin, who became a Radiant at as a very physically capable adult. He yeah. was already a Spear Master. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's a, he's a badass warrior. If you picture what someone who was a badass warrior could do if they had control over friction, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Well, and I don't think the, I mean, I don't think the edge dancers were meant to necessarily be like the, 
you know, the main fighting, you know, green berets of the, of the Mm -hmm. army or anything like that. But they do talk about them being able to like slide through the air on a thread, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think we'll, we'll get to see more awesomeness come from, Mm -hmm. from lift, but, but I, I don't, I don't see them as being the the tip of the spear Mm -hmm. for sure. Eric also says, Hey, I just joined the group after learning about your podcast and binging it for three days straight. This is some great content. Keep up the good work. Hey, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. So Theo Graham Brown says, one question, three parts. Uh, Three-part question about Lyft's visit to the Night Watcher. One, what do you think she asked for exactly? I think we we kind of addressed this. Yeah, we covered that. Yeah. Uh, Two, why does she get given the ability to gain stormlight from food? I have no idea. Uh, because all the other examples we have of the Night Watcher, she A, provides a negative when giving the requested desire, uh, and B, that negative seems strongly tied to what was asked for in the classic sense of the genie's wish, but that doesn't seem like it connects to the notion of remaining a child, what she got around being invisible. Yeah, I mean, that's very much a mystery. Yeah. And three, why did she ask for that? Uh you know, and it goes on to mention the idea that her mother died. Her mother mentioned that she should travel while she was young. So mm-hmm. did that motivate her to stay young forever? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Well, she doesn't want to go back to the Reshi Isles. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like, you know, may, may, yeah, maybe that's a good, maybe that is a motivation. That actually makes more sense than the sickness thing that I was thinking. So uh, Theogram also says... Uh, Nin says, without honor to regulate this, there is a small chance that what comes next will allow the Voidbringers to again make the jump between worlds. That would cause a desolation, and even a small chance that the world would be destroyed is a risk we cannot take. Absolute fidelity to the mission Ishar gave us, the greater law of protecting Roshar is required. So in theory, other Cosmere worlds had a huge hit 4,500 years ago and the last at the last and previous desolations. Also, Ishar is a herald going off the prelude, uh, but seems to be the leader of them in some way. But Jezrian is described as the king of the heralds, so I'm unsure. Uh, yeah, all stuff that we kind of talked about right. as well. Ian James Crone says, how do you feel about the character Lyft herself? Is she too silly? Is she a breath of fresh air from all these brooding, broken people? In my opinion, she's a breath of a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I enjoy Lyft as well. You can only have so much of kind of matchy-matchy, uh, samey-samey, likey-likey, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of the yeah. same sort of, you know, if all the characters in the comic book are all spawned, then it's just real boring real fast, you know? like. Well, and we talked about this when she was an interlude character in the last book, how funny it is to have this, all the other Radiants being like, what is happening? I don't understand. (laughs) And here this radiant has a spren being like, let me explain everything to you. And she's like, eh. (laughs) Uh, eh. Whatever. (laughs) What are we in school? This is ridiculous. (laughs) Katrina Knudsen says, how do you plan to incorporate the phrase shut it void bringer into your everyday vernacular? <laughs> oh, I already have. <laughs> <laughs> we have four little void bringers running around here any given day. <laughs> Brian McClure says best quotes from this book. Just anytime Seth calls Nightblood sword Nimi. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's your pancakefulness. Your pancakefulness. Yeah, that's pretty that's, awesome. That's the best one for me. <laughs> Brian McClure says, any predictions for characters in Edge Dancer going into Oathbringer? That's a prediction uh, question, so that's all you. I mean, what I will say is, I mean, I think we're going to get, I think we're going to get sort of a heel turn, particularly with Seth. You know, he's going to have a Jamie Lannister arc. Hopefully a successful Jamie Lannister arc. No spoilers for Game of Thrones, but. I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it wouldn't shock me if we see. Nael makes some sort of, uh, I, I can't pronounce, I've never pronounced his name the same way twice. <laughs> Nalan, whatever the hell he is, the darkness. Nin. Nin. See him make some sort of turn, but I could almost see him doubling down and going the other way, you know, and not really making a turn and being like, mm-hmm. no, that little midget doesn't know what she's talking about. I'm going to stab her. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. Katrina Knudsen says, if you could manifest food into Stormlight, how would you make the most of your trip to the mall food court? Which food stall would you hit the hardest? The people with the sample platters will not be able to keep up with me. <laughs> and I'm definitely getting, if I'm a, you know, if I have the powers of, of uh, lift, I'm definitely going to be skateboarding around on one of those like cafeteria trays mm-hmm. that I've made slick. And I'll be sliding, you know, up against like the rails and like scooping down and like grabbing a handful of General So's chicken and shoving it into my mouth. That's happening. <laughs> nice. So the General So's chicken. I mean, that's a smart choice. Protein probably makes more. I wonder. I wonder if different kinds of food make more longer lasting stormlight. I don't know. She said. She said eating fruit wasn't. Uh, oh, so probably. Sugars, because I I was gonna say the the pretzel place, the Auntie mm. Anne's with cinnamon the cinnamon pretzels. The cinnamon pretzels. Mm-hmm. But that's just a lot of carbs. I'm gonna get all that food. It's like that's not even a question. <laughs> I'm more thinking, you know, turning that food tray into a skateboard. <laughs> and I'm gonna pull some sick tricks. Brian McClure says, we've seen several, but not all of the Knights Radiant Orders and their abilities, as well as some of their ideals. Based on what has so far been revealed, which order would you prefer to be in? You know, honestly, I think an Edge Dancer. For me, it would Hmm. be either Lyft or Shallans. Yeah, I would like to be... I don't know. That's a good question. I, I think I would be one of Shallan's order as well. Yeah. I think I would be a light weaver. Yeah, it'd definitely be one of those two for me. I have no interest in flying through the air at the speed of gravity. That sounds horrifying. <laughs> right. No, thank you. Uh, Brian McClure says, do you think Nail's insanity was caused by the desolations and his time in damnation or a result of what the nine did in the prologue? We kind of talked about that a little bit. We did. I mean, I think it's a. I mean, I think it's a combination of those things. You know, mm-hmm. I think they were broken, and then I think when they deviated sort of from their path and tried to just sort of slink back into life, uh, that didn't work. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think we talked about that to a fair degree. He um, he also says, which Harold do you think we'll see next? And do you think he or she will also be insane? Insane. Uh, yeah. I hope it's Ishar because I want to yeah. know what's up. And I suspect it will be, mm-hmm. whether it's in uh, the next book or but definitely in the next two books. Mm-hmm. We'll, I think we'll meet Ishar and we'll find out more about what's going on. Um, he says, how do you think the rest of the heralds will react to the new desolation? Indifference, denial, or will they lend a hand to the good guys? I'm going to say all of the above. Mm. Different ones will do different things. Mm-hmm. Good call. Uh, Brian McClure says, if we see more of Lyft, how do you think she will interact with the rest of the characters? You know, I don't see her reacting super well to... Kaladin and Dalinar. Mm-hmm. I sort of think Lyft is going to be Lyft and sort of do her own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but it'll be interesting to see. I think what's going to be more interesting about Lyft is not going to be how she interacts with the characters we already know, but how she interacts with other edge dancers. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be more interesting. Yeah. Well, that's all of our questions. Do you have predictions for Oathbringer? I have a couple of predictions for, right. for Oathbringer. I do. Well, I have a couple of predictions based on what I've uh, read here in this book as they hopefully relate back to Oathbringer. Mm-hmm. So the first is um, the Arklo and is, you know, and Axis the Collector were the same thing, which mm-hmm. I've already, already said in there. Uh, and the second is that that tall Alethi dude is somebody we've seen before. Yeah. Definitely somebody. And it even sounds familiar, although I didn't have the time to go back through and mm-hmm. try to figure out. I'm suspecting it's one of the ones that Shalon saw mm-hmm. when she was trying to get away from her family before, right before her dad died. Mm-hmm. So I'm suspecting it's somebody somehow tied into the ghost bloods. So those right. are my predictions. Nice. All right. Do you have anything else? I do not. All right. You can find us at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at the DND podcast. Also check us out on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Come join our Facebook group page. There are cool things that happen on that Facebook group page that don't happen anywhere else. You're not going to find out about Merch Mondays anywhere but there. If you want to buy some cool Duke and Duchess swag, you can find that at T Public by searching for the Duke and Duchess podcast. We're on all the social medias. Just search for the Duke and Duchess podcast on Goodreads, Reddit, Instagram, and you will find us and you will find your tribe. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.